entering the Freedom Hut. The buck is back from China, everybody. Very excited to be here with you. So many stories to tell you, so much to share. We will get into that and also the latest on the fight over who will be testifying on Capitol Hill. Does the administration win this latest battle over Don McGahn and whether he'll get to talk to Congress? We got that and so much more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Great to have you here on the Buck Sexton Show. Man, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to take a moment here. I missed you all very much. I miss doing this show. I love doing this show. Thank you for uh, giving my excellent guest host your attention last week and, and through yesterday when I was still trying to get back on task and get back on schedule. And here I am, and I'm not going anywhere for a long time. So there it is. Back from China. Fascinating trip over there. Really interesting uh, timing because of all the back and forth over the trade deal. You see now Google just broke, I think, the last 24 hours. Google's not going to give all the software that it has been giving to Huawei, which is a major Chinese telecommunications giant that people have very real national security concerns about. There are those who think that Huawei and the race for 5G and these different battles that are playing out in the technology space will have a major impact on not just our economic competitiveness, but at some point in the future, in terms of us matching up against the Chinese, could have national security implications. Very, very serious stuff. So I I wanted to take some time that I I know there's some things going on on Capitol Hill. We've got some updates on immigration and some other stories that I'm, I'm throwing into the mix. We definitely have stuff to discuss all across the news spectrum. But I wanted to start today because I was gone for a week in China and spent a little time sharing some of my observations and what I saw, what I learned, and, and how that will, I hope, provide a little additional context for all of us here in our conversations going forward. I mean, let's just start with this. China is the biggest economic and national security challenge facing the United States, bar none, without question, it is absolutely clear. And there were different aspects of my time there that were encouraging from what I saw, different aspects that were discouraging. Now, I I did do some of the, the tourist stuff, and I can share some kind of more fun thoughts about that with you too, but I also was there for a two day conference with a lot of experts on the Chinese economy, investing in China, what, what China's going to do uh, going forward to try to prop up or grow, depending on who you talk to, its stock market and real estate prices. And, and here's what I'll say to you just right off the bat. The China that you may have in your mind from watching, as, as I did growing up, from watching movies, I know I've mentioned, which isn't even in China, Big Trouble in Little China many times, which is a kind of ridiculous but fun to watch movie. The, the notion you may have of a China where you have people, just millions of people on bicycles and running around with rickshaws and, you know, chickens that have just been, had their heads chopped off, hanging in the windows or, you know, whatever you've seen in different Chinatowns across the United States and, and that that would be some 
that China itself would be some big version of it. No, that is not. China now, you know, I was in Beijing and Shanghai. You have expensive automobiles all over the place. You have a tremendous explosion in wealth. You have massive uh, department stores full of all of the most expensive luxury goods. A very consumer-heavy, consumer-driven culture. One thing that's very noticeable over there. Uh, it's also noticeable that there are many, many high-end uh, fake merchandise stores out there. They, they sell the different you know, the Louis Vuitton bags and fake Rolexes and all these different fake uh, designer items. And it's in part because, the, and I, I spoke to some of the Chinese that I was uh, interacting with when I was there, and it's because not everybody can afford this stuff, and so it's easier for them to just you know, churn it out for everybody, and there's different levels of the fakes. It's fascinating. I mean, it's also illegal in this country. You, know, you can't do this. It's trademark. It's either patent infringement or trademark infringement. It depends on what we're specifically addressing. But this is a country that has brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and, and essentially subsistence farming, and now they're moving into the cities in massive numbers. And they are going to be our competitors, no question about it. You can drive. I got on a high-speed train from Beijing to Shanghai. You can drive for an hour and a half in Beijing in any direction, and you'll still see around you massive apartment buildings. I mean, the, the largest apartment buildings you would see in, in any American city, you'll see them in, in Beijing, and they're just sprawling. They're all over the place. Um, some of the old stereotypes about the or, or the old the old things that come to mind about china the smog very real when i was in shanghai you could just see it hanging in the air I mean, so pollution is a is a major problem pollution still not something the chinese have gotten and uh, gotten a handle on i did not and this was interesting from a, a number of perspectives i chose to uh, go in sterile meaning that I showed up in China. Granted, I was there in a, in a tourist capacity. I was not there as a representative of either of my media organizations. I did go to a conference, but I wasn't, I wasn't acting as a journalist. Um, I didn't bring a laptop. I didn't bring a cell phone because we know. It's, it's well established now that the Chinese, in particular, if you work in the media, and in my case, somebody who works in media and had a previous uh, career as an intelligence officer, you're gonna you're gonna be somebody who is of of high counterintelligence interest for the Chinese, and that means that if you log on to their systems, if you you know use your passwords, if you go to Wi-Fi, you are a target, and you're living in their world. You're living in their world, and that that then brings me to today, waking up this morning, excited that I get a chance to to read in and get back into my routine and do this show, the show that I love doing for all of you so much, I see this poll, the Gallup poll, that, you know, four in 10 Americans is, four in 10 Americans are, are favorable to socialism. And it's a reminder, one, of just how little it seems that many of our fellow Americans have learned about, about history and about recent history and, uh, around the world. But it's also an indicator that there's not a there's there's a lack of understanding of what it really means to live in a country where the government has real control over economics, real control over over private property, the means of production, 
you know, they have that in China. And from a material prosperity side, the Chinese have been getting wealthier and wealthier. There's no question. The Chinese have created a much, much larger, what you would consider middle class. There's also a hyper elite of wealthy Chinese billionaires now. So from a material prosperity side, you really have one party capitalism or a kind of one party hybrid of, a, of capitalism and statism. But the statism component is still very strong. When you ask people about China, you know, that you bring up the government, you get something mutter muttered about, you know, they mutter something about, oh, well, you know, things are getting better and there's more prosperity all the time. And, and you say, okay, well, but do you have free speech? And I was told by some of the China experts I talked to over there that you have to keep in mind free speech, something that we hold very near and dear, and individual rights, individual uh, protections of those rights. That's what animates the American mind. That's what gets us all excited about, about being Americans, you know, that, that we have a society based upon the, the individual and the relationship of the individual with the state and the ability to appreciate and enjoy all these different freedoms laid out first in the constitution, but also in our political and, and social culture. You can go to China and there's not some clamoring for that. At least you're never able to hear it. You know, who knows? It's 1.4 billion people. Just to say that, you know, from a, a small sample size of experts here or there or wherever, you can really get a sense of what the Chinese people want. I don't think anybody really knows. Um, I do know that the economic prosperity is something that you cannot ignore. It's, it's very, very real. It has happened. And in a sense, it's an economic miracle. I mean, to go from when I was born, I think it's uh, 70 billion to now, or no, yeah, 70 billion to $7 trillion in GDP. I mean, that's just remarkable. It's a remarkable rise uh, of economic power. And with that, the military power that, that comes along. But the individual there is not the basis for the polity. Individual rights don't really exist. Your rights in China or whatever the government says they are at any point in time, that's an unsettling thing. Even for me as an American to be in a country like that, where you recognize that you live your life by the leave of the government. It's so interesting, too, just a, a cursory overview of, of Google Maps when I was over there. Uh, well, sorry, it wasn't Google Maps. It was just Maps you know, using Baidu, which is their search engine. You can't, you can't use Google. You can't use Facebook. You can't use Twitter. Things are all blocked off to you. Part of the Great Firewall. I went to the Great Wall, too. We can talk about that in a moment. But you see all this, the people's this and the people's that in China. And they doth protest too much about how everything belongs to the people. It belongs to the Communist Party, the Central Committee. It belongs to the people in charge. They make the decisions. Some of those decisions have obviously brought about a degree of economic prosperity, but economic prosperity in the absence of individual freedom and property rights and rule of law does not alone make for, I think, a happy, healthy, and over the long term, stable society. You need those other components. Human beings deserve, there's, a, there's an obligation on the state to give basic rights and freedoms. And when you have a society where that has been swept aside, either with the consent at some level of the people, or just because their fear of the big S state is so profound that they don't even want to voice any of these concerns, you wonder, well, what else is this state capable of doing? 
what happens to the surplus that they believe will be in just a matter of years of, of 20 million unmarried Chinese men of, of marriageable age. What, ha- what, do, what do they do? What happens to them? What happens to this country when, what happens to China rather, when going forward they have an economic downturn? They've had all this growth and all this prosperity over a, a number of decades here, but things will change. What goes up must come down. How does it destabilize them if all of a sudden the Central Committee doesn't look like a bunch of financial wizards who just make everybody wealthier and happier all the time? Or at least wealthier. I don't know if they're happier. There is a lot. There's a lot that we have to unpack here. I mean, China is a, is a, fascinating, a fascinating problem for U.S. policymakers. Uh, I, I, I want to talk to you about some of the attitudinal things that I saw, some of the how I think the, the trade deal will play out after speaking to a lot of, a lot of Chinese about, about it and the ones that are at least willing to talk to me. Uh, so we have much, much ground to cover here, team, and, uh, and some other just fun anecdotes from what I saw there. And I'm, again, just so, so, so happy to be back with all of you. I enjoyed my time uh, overseas, and it was, it was nice to switch it up. But man, that I miss doing this radio show, and I'm so glad to be back, and I appreciate that you're all listening. So... Let's uh, hit, hit a quick beat here. We'll be back in a moment with much more on China. Stay with me. Just a bit of quick tips for those of you that are wondering. Like, all right, Buck, you were in China. What do you want to tell us about? If you're going to visit. Many of you I know have been to China a lot. Some of you probably lived there. Beijing? I think you do two days in Beijing. Maybe three. If you're a visitor, unless you have some other reason to be there. Two, two days, maybe three max. I was there for five. Two days in Shanghai. Uh, Beijing is a massive city, not to be unfair to it, but it is something along the lines of a um, 20 million person traffic jam. And the, the joke when I was there was that ev- everywhere you wanted to go, you'd ask a local, you know, how, how far is it? 30 minutes. And 30 minutes means anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Anywhere you think about going in Beijing, you better be ready to just sit in traffic. There's traffic everywhere. There's a lot of people. That's putting it mildly. But it's not a really international city in the sense that you, it, it is very much uh, Chinese-dominated and centric. And I know it's the capital city of China, so that all makes sense. But, you know, you go to New York City, for example, and there's people from all over the world there. All over the world. You go to Beijing and you're basically going to walk around and see mostly people from China. There are some internationals, but it's not a truly, it's not a true global city. Shanghai, a little more so. You have more visitors, more uh, of, an, of an international feeling to it. Best stuff to see in Beijing, stuff that I saw, I mean, the Great Wall, which <laughs> as soon as I posted a photo that I knew some of you were going to say this, you have the, the Great Wall and uh, people say, wow, Buck. You mean that walls work? Yes. In fact, we have known. Human civilization has known for a very, very long time that walls are quite effective at what they are intended to do. Either keep people in or keep people out or prevent the free movement between two points. Walls are quite good at that. It is a a marvel of, of engineering when you go and see the Great Wall itself. And I think they said... I don't even know how many thousands of miles because there's all these different sections of wall and it wasn't built all at once. And Chinese history is something that I should, I should probably brush up on quite a bit more. Fun parts about uh, going to the wall, though, is that you have a lot of domestic 
Chinese tourists that go to these different historic sites. So Beijing has the cool history stuff for sure. The Great Wall, I think, is top of the list. Of, of the stuff I saw, that was, that was the coolest. I mean, it is, it is the most impressive single uh, spot to go and see if you're doing the touristy thing. But you have these tourists from all over the rest of China, who many, many of whom are able to travel now because of the improvements in the economy. So it might be their first time ever going to the wall, especially for some of the older generation. And they, they did like seeing uh, Americans. They like seeing Westerners. Many of them wanted to take uh, photographs with me and take selfies with me, and not because they're Buck Sexton show listeners, um, although they should be. But it was uh, an interesting experience for sure to see that. You also went to the... Forbidden City, which was interesting, to be sure, was definitely, uh, or it's worth seeing. I did not get to go to uh, Tiananmen Square because it was closed for some security reason or something. I, I don't know what it was, but it was closed off to us. Uh, but the Forbidden City, where the emperor, the Chinese emperor lived, uh, was, you know, you, you see it, you walk around, you kind of done it. Um, but Beijing, and I'm just going to say this, if you're used to American Chinese food, you can get it in China, but you don't go, it's not like they've got General Tso's chicken everywhere and you're going to order whatever you're used to ordering. It's a little bit different than that. Um, the food is fine. After a few days, it was, it's not easy to be gluten-free in China, I'll tell you that. You do not want to be a, a, somebody with celiac disease because they really like brown sauce and anything in a brown sauce basically has soy sauce in it and soy sauce has gluten so that makes things tough i went to uh, my fair share of banquet dinners where i think there was one where there was a, like an, a, an eight maybe a 10 course meal you know good old the, the the buckster was able to eat white rice oh yeah got to eat some white rice. so those are some of my tours and fits so you go to shanghai better food it's fun down by the waterfront more stuff going on there if you're gonna if you're looking to kind of get out and about I would say go to Shanghai. But what does this all mean for the trade deal and for the Trump administration? And, you know, enough of Buck's tourism guide here. Uh, we're going to get into all of that and then talk about the showdown over who's going to testify in front of Congress, who's going to win these court battles over what information the Democrats have access to, that and more coming up. Remember when the left called the Green New Deal bold? Or how about their bold defense of anti-Semitism in the House? I think they're mistaking bold for something else because the way I define bold is the taste of freedom I get every morning with my Black Rifle coffee. Black Rifle delivers the best roast-to-order coffee right to your door. And Black Rifle's Coffee Club makes things easy. Just pick your blend and the amount you want and Black Rifle ships your coffee right to your door every month hassle-free. No lines, no running out, just great coffee shipped right to your door every month month hassle-free. Plus, when you join their coffee club, you'll receive discounts and offers not available to other customers. When you drink Black Rifle coffee, you're supporting a company that gives back to veteran and first responder causes and serves coffee and culture to those who truly love America. For a bold cup of America's best coffee, visit BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck and get 20% off your first purchase. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 20% off. Just an update here on the battle over information and executive privilege. Here's the latest from the Department of Justice, courtesy of uh, the Clinton News Network. I guess now, what do we call it? The, uh, the, D- the DNCCNN or the DNCNN? There you go. I like that, the DNCNN. 
The Justice Department is trying to stave off an enforcement action against Attorney General William Barr this week, making a rare offer to have the House Intelligence Committee review materials from Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report if House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff agrees to back down. Last week, Schiff said that he uh, Schiff said that he would hold a business meeting to take an unspecified action against the Department of Justice for not providing the committee documents related to Volume One of Mueller's report on link, on links between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. And so now the DOJ is thinking maybe they're going to have a different, uh, you know, they're going to try to come to some sort of accommodation here. Okay. I want to but I'm not done with China yet. I mean, look, I was there for a week. We got more to talk about on China, but I just this is the the latest from today and it's getting a lot of getting a lot of attention. Um, speaking of a lot of attention, we'll also discuss the fight over uh, abortion and where all that's going because I, I was gone for that. So there's going to be some of, hey, I didn't get a chance to talk to you about this, so I want to take the time to talk to you about it now. Obviously, because I missed all of you very much. And Here's what we got going on with the Democrats. I, I've realized this as I was away and had a lot of time to think and, and ponder, ponder the universe in China. Uh, the Democrats, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I, I think the political calculations here are not that clear that they even, they even know how all this will play out. No one really knows, but they don't even think they necessarily know. How do you, get, how do you really assess impeachment, let's just say? Let's start with that. I think what three presidents have been impeached. Bill Clinton was impeached after his reelection, so that doesn't really give you much of a uh, much of a way to compare things then and now, because right? Trump would be at least theoretically impeached before trying to be reelected president. Would it blow back or would it take Trump down? Nobody really knows. Nobody really knows. But what I do know is this: the efforts that the Democrats are going through here to try and take all this information, just pry it from the hands of the Republicans, take it out of you know, President Trump's senior most advisors' minds, and just use the, the, the Congress to jam the Trump administration up with just requests for documents and appearances and hearings and this and that. And this is all a, a throwing the... Uh, the proverbial wooden shoe in the gears of the factory, which is at least how some people say the word sabotage came along, but I don't think that's actually true, so don't, don't take that one. See, this is the problem with the Internet. You read all this stuff, and you're like, is that even true? I don't know. I saw it on the Internet. And as we know, Abe Lincoln once said, don't believe everything you see on the Internet. So this is the Democrats, though, the gears of sand in the watch of this administration. That's what all this stuff is. Does it win? Do people like it? I'm not even sure that's the plan. I think the plan is much more to just make it as unpleasant and high-pressure a situation as possible for Trump and all the people around him whose power and opinions matter for this administration. And it's, it's a, a slow and, and delay tactic. Slow things up, delay things. That's the main, that's the main effort. And, and by just forcing all these showdowns either with the doj or later on or upcoming certainly in in court it's it makes things harder for them but i, I did want to just do a, a little more of what i think's going on in uh, in china and what i took away from this um, we're going to have a problem folks at some point uh, china is not going to stop the behaviors that the trump administration is is rightly i'd say calling out uh, they do not 
I don't think they're going to go for a trade deal before they see who wins re-election. Why would they? They're able to try and wait this out, and if they know if they get a President Biden or you know any of these different candidates, any these Democrat candidates, they essentially reset the clock. They get a, they get a restart on. Oh, well, now let's have a new series of negotiations. And because this issue is associated with Trump, because holding China accountable for its violations of intellectual property theft and and hacking and all these different and the tariffs that it has in place and all the ways that it cheats so that it's state. Uh, state-supported enterprises, uh, you know, state-owned enterprises, are able to be globally, in some cases, globally dominant companies or close to it. All the different ways that China tilts the table toward itself, that's not going to stop anytime soon. They're going to wait and see what's going on with the possible incoming Democrat administration. And because it's all associated, the fight against them on this is associated with Trump, any Democrat who comes into office is going to be in a position where it's like, well, that was a Trump issue. You know, think about Obama with the war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan. Didn't matter what was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. Bush was the Iraq war, and Obama was saying that he was all about the Afghanistan war. And that was, that was never going to change because that was the dynamic when he took office. Any Democrat coming in, fighting China on trade, trade war with China is a Trump thing. And therefore, the Democrat has to take a different approach to that, which likely means going back to where we've been, which is a form of, you know, suffer in silence. Don't make too much noise about this. We need China. We don't want to we don't want to, you know, ruffle any feathers, rock the boat. You name it. Um, But this is a country that has a really uh, obvious reinvigorated national pride. I've heard from people that have been going there for a long time that there is a, uh, a sense of a kind of resentment toward the West and toward America now that was not really there before. The idea being the Chinese are, they're now wealthy and the second most powerful economy in the world, the largest by population country in the world. And they don't like taking a backseat to the United States. And they, they, they're strutting their stuff a little bit. Can we compete with them? Economically, and can we compete with them in terms of innovation? We'll have to see. Uh, they are executing on a very aggressive program of expanding all of their different, you know, the different industries that they're already in. They have this this belt and uh, belt and road policy where they're going around the globe, working with regimes. They don't care what their human rights record may be. They don't care. You know what's going on in that country. They'll build infrastructure. They'll do deals with the government as long as they have access to raw materials. It's a kind of 21st century Chinese mercantilism. 21st century mercantilism. I mean, they are making sure they have access to all the raw materials. They need to continue their growth. And, and what does that look like going forward? How will they be able to control all of this? And will they butt up against their neighbors in ways where what is now friction turns into something much hotter, much more dangerous, much more fissile. We don't know yet. But this is, this is it. This is the big challenge. This is a country that does not plan to be in this junior role to America much longer. And what that means for us, what that means for the global markets, who knows? Um, there's certainly been a deception that American presidencies stretching back for 30 years have fallen for that China has no 
ambitions beyond just pulling itself out of poverty and everything's going to be fine and they want to be a, a friend to the rest of the world and uh, they don't view themselves as the preeminent preeminent i mean there is a clear chinese nationalism that they are the preeminent civilization in the world already and therefore it is only rightful for them to take their place as the hegemon and that thinking certainly comes across you know, there are Chinese companies now that are top 100 companies by earnings that are really just in the Chinese market. I mean, the market is so big that internal dominance can mean they're a, a global behemoth. Uh, you know, 1.4 billion people. We only have 320-some-odd million in this country. 1.4 billion. Wrong around. There's a lot of Chinese people. Um, and they want material goods. They want prosperity and they have a government that does not value as i was saying at the start of the show individual rights that does not you know if you get picked up off the street by the chinese government i don't care who you are you're in a bad place uh, they decide that they're going to make an example of you or that you're some kind of a threat to the plan that they're engaged in you have very little very little to uh, come to your side and that's true for anybody in that country right now. And that, that's an eerie thing. It, un, it, unsettled, it unsettled me when I was there. You're in a country that has not embraced these Western values of, of uh, rule of law that is, that is beyond political ambitions of, of those in power. Look, I'm not saying our situation is perfect either. Right? We could, we're, I talk to you all the time about how rule of law is being violated at our border and what we've seen from the deep state in their efforts to you know, slow down and and uh, destroy, if they can, the Trump administration and use the law as a weapon and all that. But it, it's different in China. And now, now here's, some of you probably knew this was coming. This is where I also have to tell you. My friends, I know we've got, a, this week we'll dive in the news as we always do. There's a lot more things I want to get to and talk to you about. Uh, but if you will, if you'll just let me for a moment. This country is amazing. America. This place is incredible. Just, just give me a moment, if you don't mind. Let me just say, America is such a, a, an, an incredible, and we are all so fortunate to be Americans. You go, you spend a week at a place like China, you say to yourself, I am so blessed. We are all, those. I know not everyone who listens to the show is, is in America. Some of you live in Canada, some live in Israel, some live in Germany, some live in Japan. Um, usually, US, it's basically America, Canada, and U.S. military bases around the world. That's who listens to the Buck Sexton show. But man, this place is incredible. You know, Drink the water right out of the tap. Don't have to worry about that. You know, obviously that really gets, that really uh, bothers me. I hate that stuff where you can't drink the water out of the tap. Um, this is a, a country of just tremendous assumed freedom. And, and it is there. It's not perfect, but there is an assumption of freedom. There's an assumption that if something were to go wrong, you have a chance to make it right. You're not just an automaton doing whatever the state wills you to do. That is the existence that a lot of other people lead. And in China, you do do whatever the state tells you to do. There is no other option. State gets to determine what's going on in your life. State gets to make decisions for you. It was making decisions about how many kids you were allowed to have until relatively recently. Uh, made decisions back in the 60s with Mao and the Great Leap Forward that led to the deaths of tens of millions of people. It was a strange thing to reach into my wallet and pull out currency that had Mao Zedong on it, who was a, a dictator and a mass murderer, really. 
but that's how you're paying. You know, we, we, we talk about grappling with our history in this country. Nobody on our money's got anything on Chairman Mao. That's for sure. What does this mean, by the way, for a country now that has the kind of power, influence, and money that it's, it's a global player? Does it become a country that is moral on the world stage? I, remains to be seen. Uh, plenty of reason to doubt that. Does it become an aggressor against its neighbors? How long before it thinks that America is not willing to pay the price to push back on Chinese aggression in its sphere of influence? You know, I, these are all the questions that I had as I was coming out of there. But the U.S. pivot to China, forget about what the Obama administration said about it. It's already happened. We now face one near-peer competitor, and it is the People's Republic of China. Um, and I'm just so glad to be back in America, man. When you, when you land in this country after you've been in I was only there for a week. And look, I've been in... I've been in war. I've been in war zones for many, many months on end. Different war zones, and um, but there's something really special every time about touching back down in this place. When you leave the land of the unfree and enter the land of the free, so just take a little moment to be like, man, this country is great. I'm telling you, it is worth it. It is worth it. Remember how lucky we all are for all the problems that I see, for all the things we talk about here on the show. This place is amazing and it's uh, great to be back here doing the show all right uh, i've got a, a quick moment here to catch breath and we come back we will talk about this don mcgann thing capitol hill uh, oh also someone's lying in the government well that's leaves a lot of open territory a lot of people are lying in the government but there are some folks that have been caught up in this uh, russia collusion investigation and have lied and they need to be held accountable because other people that lied during the course of that who were civilians who were not part of the government apparatus had their freedom taken away for a period of time, face felony charges. What about those in the government who do that? Shouldn't they be punished the same way? We'll get into that and more coming up. When you have the best economy probably that we've ever had, I don't know how the hell do you lose this election, right? Gotta win this state. We did great last time. Remember the polls, the fake polls? Pennsylvania will go to Hillary Clinton. Unfortunately for them, it didn't work out that way. Upon my inauguration, I inherited one of the worst trade deals ever negotiated. It was ready to be put into action, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It would have destroyed the state of Pennsylvania. Sleepy Joe said that he's running to, quote, save the world. Well, he was. He's going to save every country but ours. They want Biden so that China can continue to make $500 billion a year and more, ripping off the United States. They like it. The previous administration, what they did to our country, they should be ashamed of themselves. There of how formidable President Trump is on stage, at rallies, on the campaign trail. Uh, Democrats are in for a little bit of a, a rude refresher course. I don't, think the, the, I don't think they remember just how much Trump wiped the floor with his Republican opponents and then with Hillary. But that's what's going to be happening. Uh, that, that 2020 election, folks, is going to be quite a show. By the way, uh, I mentioned McCann, uh, or McGann, rather, and, and the fight over getting him to testify. Here's a uh, Here's what our friend Lindsey Graham had to say. Play it. 
what they want to do in terms of claiming, you know, executive privilege. Uh, if I were the White House, I would fight this effort because they may begin available to uh, Mueller. And Mueller, to me, was the guy that we all considered to be fair. The Mueller report is in. Don McGahn testified 30 hours. And what I see going on in the House is more political revenge than it is anything else. Yep. This is just Trump derangement syndrome through the powers of the Congress to subpoena and therefore harass people and keep running us through this over and over again. What are the politics of this really, though, in terms of who benefits? Qui, qui bono, right? Who's going to benefit from this? Will Democrats do well if they stay on this track? And will McGahn end up testifying among others? There are some other Trump world folks that have gotten subpoenas. We'll talk about that and uh, immigration, status of that fight, and so much more. Coming up, good to be back, team. Stay with me. I believe that the president's conduct since the report was released with respect to Mr. McGahn's testimony and other information we have sought has carried this pattern of obstruction and cover-up well beyond the four corners of the Mueller report. He took to Twitter to call Mr. McGahn a liar. His lawyers went on cable television to do the same, to call Mr. McGahn a liar. There are reports of the president and his lieutenants exerting other kinds of pressure on Mr. McGahn. In short, the president took it upon himself to intimidate a witness who has a legal obligation to be here today. This conduct is not remotely acceptable. Everything that we're looking at today, even gaveling in today's hearing without a witness, is theatrical. The cameras love a spectacle, and the majority loves the chance to rant against the administration. I just am glad today to see that we don't have chicken on the dice. Well, as I understand it, they're doing that for the office of the presidency for future presidents. I think it's a very important precedent. And uh, the attorneys say that they're not doing that for me. They're doing that for the office of the president. So uh, we're talking about the future. Will he or will he not testify? You got white, former White House counsel Don McGahn, who on instructions from the White House is, is not showing up at uh, at this House Judiciary Committee or in response to this House Judiciary Committee subpoena. And he's saying, look, you know, the, the, the administration's position is there. It's what it should be, which is they're going to fight every step of the way on every issue, which is exactly what they should be doing. Because the Democrats are, are engaged. This is an oversight. This is not a good faith effort to get to the truth of how we're being governed and what's going on in the executive branch. This is just trying to create a spectacle. This is using the power of the House of Representatives, of a, of a Democrat majority in the House of Representatives, to have the government, all these government employees, their salaries being paid by you and me, the taxpayer, act as a kind of opposition research arm for the Democratic National Committee. This is, the, this is a DNC oppo effort you are seeing play out in real time. We've, we've already had the Mueller report, which I read again on the plane ride over to China, and I got to tell you, it is not more riveting reading the second time around. Uh, but we, we've already had the Mueller report. We already know that there's no there there. But they keep going, and, and now it's either they won't give us, the Democrats complain that they won't give enough information or, or the full scope of the information, or they just start other investigations that are spinoffs of this. It, it, you know, last week or the week before, I was obviously gone last week, it was all about seeing the unredacted report, the full report. He needs to see the full report. That's what they were all saying. And then 
we're told, oh, okay, well, actually what we need are more witnesses to show up. And I know today uh, you have Hope Hicks and also uh, Donaldson who are told that they have to, according to Nadler here, you have, uh, they're, they're supposed to show up. They're going to be questioned. Uh, this is going to be a legal fight. This should be a legal fight because the, the president, in waiving the executive privilege that he does have and could have asserted during the Mueller probe in order to comply with a criminal investigation, that should not be a waiver of all privilege going forward for anything that was discussed by the President of the United States with his senior counsel. There's no good faith here at all from the Democrats on this. Though. I mean, the, you, you know this. I was going to say you have to remember this. You know this. I mean, the White House saying that McGahn should not show up is an effort to at least slow, if not stop, what's going to be a spectacle where they're going to just ask Don McGahn what's already been hashed out of the Mueller report. They just they want it on TV. They want there to be opportunities to embarrass the president, opportunities to bring up things that are uh, not brand enhancing, I guess you could say, that, that are not going to do uh, anything to make people think that President Trump is a more adept and, and, and more skilled commander in chief. But fighting them every step of the way is what has to happen here. Uh, fighting them is, is absolutely the path forward. Otherwise, you're just going to keep getting pulled around and, and forced into things and forced into essentially damaging one's own presidency or damaging one's president. Yeah, you had Nadler. I just want to make sure two former White House officials, Hope Hicks and uh, Donaldson. I don't, I don't know who, uh, who Donaldson is. I just learned this now. Who's Donaldson? Longest serving aides in the, uh, in the West Wing. Uh, so, Oh, Annie Donaldson. There you go. Served as chief of staff to former White House counsel Don McGahn. Oh, okay. So this is an end run on they can't get McG McGahn has said no. So now they're going to get McGahn staff. They're going to subpoena everybody. And to those who say, oh, Buck, they have a right to do this. I just want to say, can they subpoena the same person a hundred times? Just subpoena them, subpoena them, subpoena them. Can you be told you have to show up to Congress every day for the next year just because Congress says so? What are the limits? At what point do we say that the Congress should not be used as an open-ended excuse uh, or the Congress's power cannot be used as an open-ended excuse to do anything and everything to try and trash Trump, destroy any... Remember, it's not just the information that may come out from the questioning of different senior Trump aides in these interactions. It's also that Trump will have, in some cases, especially if, if there's still people that he either trusts outside of government or that still work for him in the government, it'll strain relationships that he has with very senior advisors. How can any president going forward have any faith whatsoever in the very high-level strategic conversations that he or she would have with top advisors when the Democrats have made it clear that they will try to break that privilege, they will fight everything, uh, they, they'll fight any sense of privacy, any sense of the president able to seek counsel without it ending up on the front page of the newspaper. I mean, this is going to change what at least any Republican president, you know, the Democrats would never do this, right? I mean, they, they didn't even fight. They're suing and the media is suing too for more access to these records. And 
trying to get more stuff about Trump's finances. And I know the Deutsche Bank decision just came out recently. Uh, but they're, they're, they're just going to do what they've been doing, which is pretending that the information they have doesn't really matter. They always need more information. You know, they didn't go after Obama's college records with one one hundredth of the gusto they're going after Trump's financial records. You have to ask yourself, why is that? We know the answers, but you need to ask the question anyway. I think that uh, Trump's approach here is the one that is the only one at this point. Fight him every step of the way. Make him just, make him pull it out of you. Make him take you to court. No more compliance because you're trying to be helpful and there's this, ooh, yeah, government institutions, we all need to support them. No, no more of that. That's done. That's over with. Now this is political trench warfare. Every subpoena should be dragged into court. Every witness should be told, don't, don't show up until we've reached some kind of accommodation. I know Bill Barr is now negotiating something. It's not really clear what's going to happen yet for this testimony, but I, I like the way the administration has geared up for battle because battle is what they face. I'm doing the show from California this week, which is nice, although the weather I think right now in New York and D.C. is, believe it or not, better than the weather in California. It's a little cold here. I only brought like a couple of sweatshirts with me, you know, uh, and it's, it's actually a little cold in California, which I did not, I did not sign up for that. Uh, but sure enough, here I am, and immigration is still a massive, massive policy challenge. Nothing has, nothing's gotten better. In fact, I saw an Ann Coulter column right when I got back, because you all know I, I really like Ann's work, um, but I, I saw an Ann Coulter column where uh, she said what I've been saying, or she wrote what I've been saying for a long time, which is that the, the border is is worse now than it has been perhaps ever. Uh, that our that our southern border is so porous and security has gotten to be uh, so it, it not, I mean, I, I don't even know what, what the proper way to describe it is other than it, it just, we, we cannot secure the border with the laws that we have right now. It is ineffective. We are ineffective right now in having a, an, an orderly southern border. Uh, with all that going on, I, I come back. You know, Anne agrees that it's it's terrible. She's very upset with with Trump because of this. And uh, guess what California is doing? I mean, I, I, this is I should never say things like I couldn't believe this because of of course I can believe it. California wants to give health care to. What they write as here at NBC News is undocumented immigrants. We don't use the term undocumented. Undocumented is a nonsense politicized term. Undocumented is, is the equivalent for me of when people say that any criticism of radical Islam is, is essentially Islamophobia. This is not a good faith discussion. This is not trying to have a worthwhile exchange, learn about an issue, and come to good conclusions about policy. This is meant to skew it in a certain direction. This is meant to make people feel a certain way about those who are in the country illegally. Oh, they're not illegal. They're undocumented. People aren't illegal. They're just undocumented. No. U.S. federal code says that the term is illegal alien. That is the term. So they can, they can keep saying undocumented, but what that shows you is an active, it is an editorial choice. It is not an accuracy choice. It is not a legally correct choice. It is an editorial choice that anyone who uses the term undocumented is making every time they use that term. But here in California, which is the the test tube, this is the experiment playing out. This shows us what happens with mass illegal immigration over a large period or long period of time. And what you have is a political system at the state level then 
where it's no longer even possible to view illegal immigration as a problem. The state of California, the state government of California, does not have an issue with illegal aliens, meaning they do not have, I mean, they have a lot of issues, but they do not have criticism of it. They do not treat it like it is a problem to be solved. Uh, they treat it like it is, a, it is a situation to be addressed through the largesse of the taxpayer. That's right, you and me, folks. California is considering giving free health care to illegal aliens. That's what you got here. And this is a classic NBC movie. They talk about a woman. It's a very sad story. A woman who has cancer, did not have access to health care. So I guess that means that now we have to pay for the entire world's health care. That you you must pay your taxes. You must pay them fully and accurately, even though the tax code is obscure, opaque, doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. You must do that. And you must do it now knowing that money that you are paying if you live in the state of california for sure and maybe at the federal level it depends on how they um, manage to go about this you know i'm sure that they want federal dollars kicked in for this you know there's a lot of ways that the states try to tip into the federal trough but even if they do all you know even if they fund this only through the state of california that means if you live here and a lot of you listening to the show i know do live in california you're going to be your tax dollars are going to go toward giving health care to people who are in the country illegally, which I would just, I would want to ask questions of Gavin Newsom, the governor in this state, asking things like, okay, so what about somebody who just flies here and then demands health care? What about anyone who gets a visa and then says, hey, I can't get a heart transplant in the Sudan, but I'm in America now and I deserve a heart transplant. Which my understanding is cost something like a million dollars all in. So, so do we pay for that? What about the Americans who are on waiting lists for these things? What about the Americans who can't pay for things? The people that are in the country legally. Do they just get whatever they whatever healthcare they need pay for? Look, it's very easy to offer free things that other people have to put the bill for. I know this is also called the Democratic Party's platform. This is what they do. They make promises to people that are easy for them because it's always someone else who's going to pay. It's the rich, it's the Republicans, it's the fat cats, it's people with white privilege, whatever it may be. But when you start to look at what this will do to not just taxes, but to the healthcare system itself, I, I kind of want them to play out this experiment in California. I, I want to see what happens. I think it'll be a warning for the rest of the country. You already have ERs that are very crowded with illegal aliens. I've seen it myself. I've been I've waited in ERs before when a lot of people that you know do not speak a word of English, it seems, are coming in for routine medical care. And you have to wait in line behind all this and deal with all this. And, you know, if you're if your eyes bleeding, sorry, you know, you got to wait because other people want to have a vision test. And the taxpayer is going to pay for it. And these people aren't supposed to be in the country at all. This is the future we're heading for. I just I want to ask and we're going to talk more about immigration after the break here. But I want to ask, where is the line drawn? When is it too much? If you can be in the country illegally and the expectation is not only that you get to send your kids, your, if your kids are born here and you're illegal, they're U.S. citizens, you get to uh, stay in the country once you have kids here because you can't separate families and there are ways to there are ways to get access to benefits even if you're an illegal, if you have a, especially if you have a kid here. But if, if that's not a problem, then I, I need the Democrats to explain to me, and I really mean this, 
why we don't just let anyone in. Why do we even have an immigration system? If we have unlimited funds for this, if we have nothing but cash to throw at people that are violating our immigration laws, and they're going to make this country better, stronger, smarter, all the stuff they say, why not just open the doors entirely? They don't have a reason why open borders is a bad idea because under the surface, in their heart, the Democrats, the left, are an open borders party. It just makes them more powerful. They like the, uh, they like the way that this plays out from an electoral politics standpoint. They like that there are people that are going to, the, the Democrats, people, the Democrats are going to benefit from this politically. They want greater levels of dependence on the federal government. They want the continued influx of particularly uh, migrants from the third world who are going to take the left and become a part of the you know intersectional identity politics that they're always promoting. Uh, and that's why today when you had Ben Carson uh, in this maelstrom over the Democrats criticizing him because he was at a hearing talking about rules that would take public housing assistance away for illegal immigrants, I think a lot of people would st- stop and say, hold on a second, we, we, have, we give public housing assistance, we pay for illegals to have housing in this country? Here's what it says, this is on Fox News today. Uh, quote, quite frankly, I find it despicable, Congresswoman Maloney said of, of the plan, which would eliminate government aid for families with members who are in the U.S. illegally, even if other family members, such as children, are citizens or legal residents. A HUD study found that roughly 25,000 households are in this situation, including approximately 55,000 children with legal status. Yeah, that's right. This is getting rid of what is effectively a loophole, which is that if you're in the country illegally, but you have a kid and they're a U.S. citizen, you are not supposed to be able to benefit from the, the, the federal largesse that comes with having a U.S. citizen child. You're not supposed to be able to you know, receive money and receive the benefits for being here illegally. But that's currently the situation. Um, Carson said, look, if you read the rule carefully, you'll see it provides a six-month deferral on request if they have not found another place to live. He said the renewal can be, or the, the deferral can be renewed twice for a total of 18 months, which is plenty of time for Congress to engage in comprehensive immigration reform, so this becomes a moot point. Yeah. Yeah, this is where we are now. It is politically radioactive. Democrats view it as politically radioactive to oppose giving illegal aliens free stuff from the taxpayer. And a better way to say that is stuff that the taxpayer pays for that is then appropriated by the government and given to people who are not entitled to be in the country legally. Tell me again how the Democrats aren't the open borders party, somebody, please. Team, there are some stories that I, I didn't get a chance to address with you right when they came out. So I don't know if you've already heard a little bit of this, but I don't care because I have a take on it and I need to tell you about it. This is just from a couple of days ago when I was trying to make my way back from uh, Red China. DNA tests, this is in the Washington Examiner, reveal 30%. of suspected fraudulent migrant families were unrelated. One in three. This is stunning. This is based on a pilot program with rapid DNA tests of immigrant adults who were, quote, suspected of arriving at the southern border with children who weren't theirs. And this revealed the adults were not related to the children. 
Quote, there's been some concern. Are the step are they stepfathers or adopted fathers? The official said those were not the case. In these cases, they were misrepresented as family members. The pilot lasted a few days earlier this month and was used only in McAllen, Texas and El Paso, Texas, according to ICE officials. Department of Homeland Security said they'll look at the results to determine if it will be part of its comprehensive solution to border issues. Homeland Security has not issued a public statement on its intentions going forward. Um, what have I been saying all along? This whole thing at the border is a massive, a massive scam. Of course, people are going to abuse this system. It's an incredibly enticing offer to be able to show up with some kids at the border and find yourself all of a sudden led into America without any, without any real issue, without any problem. You are good to go. All you have to do is show up with kids. Of course, people are going to do this. It's exactly what's been happening. And I, I know that, that Trump is working on, there's this immigration immigration plan that's getting some play, it's getting, getting talked about here. And I know Ken Cuccinelli is expected to pick up a, a major immigration role in the administration. I, I, think, I think that's a pretty solid pick. I saw some weird stuff about Kobach, Chris Kobach saying he needed to have a private jet. I don't know if that was the case or not. I was digging out, man. I had 500 emails waiting for me after a week of being off the grid. 500 emails. Um, and Lord only knows how many Facebook and Twitter and other messages. And I, I've been I've been digging out. So if there's anything today that I miss, you're like, Buck, you need to get to. Please do let me know. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I've, I've try, I'm trying to cover as much ground as I can as as quickly and efficiently as I can, but it's it was fire hose time when I finally had connectivity again. But so back to what's going on here with immigration. I mean, Trump is in a position where he's better than the alternative on on this, right? He's better than the Democrats who are effectively open borders. But Trump hasn't delivered. And we need to be very clear about that. Trump has not delivered on his promises on immigration. Let's not delude ourselves. Let's not pretend something is true that is not true. And that may be a problem for him going into re-election. That may be something that some of his base is not willing to accept. I, I don't know yet. Uh, but the massive scam, the more data we get on it, it keeps on becoming more clear that this is an, an active defrauding of the United States government. This is an, an active process of people showing up over 100000 a month now, lying and trying to, to scheme and, and abuse things. I mean, they've got the cartels. The cartels are running tons of illegal drugs over the border all the time, trying to find ways to do it more efficiently, better cost for them. And now they realize the money made from human smuggling so that they have an incentive, too, in helping these, these individuals that they are transporting and getting a fee from to get into the country. I mean, it's better for their business. You know, I, I watched some movies on the plane. And I, I, I know I may get a little heat for this one. I couldn't even get through the Clint Eastwood movie, The Mule. And I know people liked it. I just, I'm sorry. He, he all of a sudden, he does like three trips with a bag in his car. And the leader of a Mexican drug cartel is like, he's our best guy. Come on. This this is ridiculous. I'm, it's, it's kind of a bad, the plot's kind of a bad ripoff of Breaking Bad. I know I can hear some of you booing at me. That's fine. That's fine. I saw Stars Born. I was on a plane for 12 13 hours there and roughly the same coming back, something like that. It was long flights to get to China. 
I saw Star is Born very good, predictable, but very good. Uh, well acted, well done. And now, you know what? I'm going to lean into the boo right now. I'm going to lean into your boos. That's right. I missed you. All right. You're my family. I can tell you things that's going to upset some of you. That's okay. We can do that. We have that kind of relationship. Aquaman was an unwatchable piece of trash. Oh, I know. It hurts me too. It hurts me too. Aquaman was terrible. Completely. And I, I don't remember who, I remember someone in conservative media writing nice stuff about it on, on, I think it was Twitter saying it was fun. And I want to find who it was just so I can say, really, man, can't remember who it is off the top of my head. Aquaman was one of the worst movies. I, it's one of the worst big budget movies I've ever seen. I mean, there's worse movies, obviously, but for a movie that they spent a lot on, uh, over the, for a movie with over a hundred million dollar budget, maybe even over a two hundred million dollar budget, Aquaman was. Mark, have you seen it? I it's, have. I'm, am I being too harsh? Way too harsh. What? Oh my gosh, Mark! Come on, man. They're like all these weird fish running around. There's like lasers and stuff. It makes no sense whatsoever. But listen, I prefer Marvel movies, and I think the DC movies have been terrible in comparison. But Aquaman was one of the better ones when you're looking at DC movies. Oh my gosh, Mark! How can a man who's so skilled and so right about so many things be so wrong on this one? But you know, I think the I think most of the audience who's seen Aquaman is probably with you. So, oh, but I do have a recommendation for you before we go into the break. Uh, they will not grow old. Fabulous incredible really it's peter jackson it's world war one as told through the voices of people who were there in the trenches literally there in the trenches uh and they do a, a color update of the footage from it and it's very well done i mean it's eerie it's haunting you'll watch this and think how could so much uh how could so much human misery and death and the infliction of these casualties, how, how could this meat grinder of humanity have been allowed to happen the way that it did? But they, they will not grow old if you have not seen it. Re see, this is, when you get on a long plane ride, you watch a lot of movies, right? I read books and watch movies. Uh, it's excellent. It's excellent. It's, it's a, a, every history class that does World War I should, should watch that movie, every single one. It's a documentary, really, but, I mean, every history class across the country, in my opinion, should have to watch, uh, that does World War One. should have to watch They Will Not Grow Old. It's excellent. We'll be right back. So it's not hypothetical. There are 6,000 women a year who get abortions in the third That's right, representing less than 1% of cases. I know, but 6,000 pregnancies. Let's take ourselves in. Yeah. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of a woman in that situation. If it's that late in your pregnancy, that means almost by definition, you've been expecting to carry it to term. We're talking about women who have perhaps chosen a name, women who have purchased a crib, families that then get the most devastating medical news of their lifetime, something about the health or the life of the mother that forces them to make an impossible, unthinkable choice. And the bottom line is, uh, as horrible as that choice is, uh, uh, that woman, that family may seek uh, spiritual guidance, they may speak, seek medical guidance, but it's, that decision's not going to be made any better, medically or morally, because the government is dictating how that decision should be made. People were all excited about Mayor Pete's town hall on Fox News, at least that audience was, and a lot of you are like, fuck, I wasn't excited. I want to take on that one moment there. 
that we just played for you, where he's talking about third trimester abortions. I know I was gone when this uh, law passed in Alabama. I was in China, and I was able to pick up some of the media and left-wing freak out over it. Uh, but now you have Mayor Pete out there, and he's gained. He's the first Democrat candidate to not break out to the front of the pack, but go from being a kind of who cares candidate to being a top three or top four candidate. So he's he's obviously made his way up the ranks, and this is where I have to say that he's a guy who's willing to either pretend he is not as smart as we're told he is, or. Uh, maybe he's just not that maybe he's not as clever as we're led to believe. I don't know. Because what he said there was nonsense, total nonsense. Um, you know, the, the, the games and the and the half truths, mistruths, the effort to hide what's really going on whenever you talk to the uh, pro-choice side about any of these issues. And I'm out here in California and I was actually out last night just having a drink at the uh, hotel where I'm staying. And I was around some people who were chatting and, and chatted up some some folks here who, sure enough, very, very upset. I, I didn't bring up politics. They just started talking about it. Sure enough, very, very upset about the Alabama bill. It's uh, getting a lot of attention among the Hollywood set. I think uh, Kristen Wiig, who's from formerly of SNL, still on SNL, I don't know, she said that she's taken her comedy show from there or something i mean there's all this stuff now they're all upset about it they want to do a women's march you know women's march for control of their bodies or something like that uh, but they have been fed all this propaganda and and Buttigieg, uh Buttigieg there or buddha judge he's engaging in that very same kind of propaganda by saying that one it's a function or this is an issue the third trimester abortions of which of which there are an estimated six thousand a year a lot of people, a lot of little tiny human beings. Not that's then, you know, imagine if you said that you had 6,000 deaths from something that was entirely preventable and you said, oh, it's only 6,000 and we're talking about dead babies. Oh, it's only 6,000. That's we, we, we can accept that we could we could make it zero, but let's not make it zero because it's only 6,000. That's that's the moral fallacy that. Uh, Buddha judge is engaging in there because he needs the Planned Parenthood. He needs the left wing abortion lobby behind him or else he has no no shot at winning the nomination and certainly no shot at winning the presidency. He knows that. So he'll say whatever he has to say under the circumstances. But what he also said there about how it's the life of the mother, um, that's a lie. There isn't there is, in fact, no known medical condition that arises in the third trimester of a pregnancy that requires the termination of the pregnancy for the safety of the mother induced labor yes bringing the baby out of the mother yes but there is no medical condition that exists and you can check you can check this you can check my homework on this if you like no medical condition that exists that requires the termination of a pregnancy in the third trimester no such thing does Mayor Pete not know that, or does he not care to know that? Or does he just prefer to lie? Does he prefer to make it up as he goes along? And it's even worse than that. Notice how he uses words to describe a third trimester abortion like unthinkable and horrible. 
That's not how the abortion left describes any abortion. They, they don't think of it as unthinkable. They don't say it's horrible. In fact, you do have the incredibly ghoulish and, and really satanic mentality among many of the pro-Planned Parenthood set on the Democrat and the Democratic Party that abortion should be celebrated, that this is something that is the, uh, the, the manifestation of a kind of empowerment of women, that you know, women are now free because of abortion, therefore you know, shout your abortion, celebrate your abortion. Horrible stuff. So why does Mayor Pete say this is terrible and then lie about why it's necessary? It's not medically necessary. That's not true. It is terrible. And if it's terrible and not medically necessary, why does he still support it? 80% plus in all the reputable polling that I've seen of the American people say that there should not be any abortions in the third trimester. 80% plus. This is an issue where there's really not a lot of, not a lot of doubt when it comes to the data about where the American people are. So then why is the Democratic Party a party of abortion extremism? Meaning that they they will accept, they will sign on for, they will allow without a fight any restriction on abortion whatsoever. They will allow none, no restrictions whatsoever. So they're they're de facto in the minority, in, in a fringe here for their position, but they, because of the Supreme Court and because of the ways that they have been able to manipulate the levers of power to their advantage on this issue, they've skipped through the legislative process. They skipped through the democracy that they profess to love so much when it comes to defending our democracy against Trump and Russia. Notice how the same, this is, I know, a digression, but we'll talk about this in the next hour. The same idiots who have been saying that Trump does Putin's bidding all the time don't have anything to say about now, the story that they're running, I don't think it's a really, a really a threat, that Trump is going to go to war with Iran. Iran is a client state of Russia in many ways. I mean, Iran and Russia are closely allied. They work together to prop up the Assad regime. Putin does not want Iran to collapse, does not want regime change. Putin is supportive of the mullahs. So if Trump were Putin's puppet, why would he do that? I, I just I would like some of the so-called smart set in the media and the different you know pundits and analysts on the left who hate Trump and on the right who hate Trump so much and say he's Putin's puppet. Explain that one to me. Taking out Russia's most important client state in the Middle East, more important even than Syria, is that doing Putin's bidding? That must be 15D chess. That must be some level of chess that no one's ever heard of or thought of before. That's how skilled the uh, Russian manipulation of Trump is, that no one could even imagine how it's a manipulation they'd ever want to engage in. Anyway, back to uh, this situation with, with Buttigieg. Uh, I have not been impressed with this guy so far. I, I found his answer on abortion to be uh, intellectually indefensible and, and based on lies. And I think that we have to remember what is at stake here. The Democratic Party is a party of abortion extremism there's no question about this and we are finally pushing back and fighting back and things are going to get ugly around this issue just wait if a supreme court seat opens up too it's it's going to get truly nasty out there let's talk about iran and what's going on with the trump administration and also a plan to judge to assess 
how much adversity a person has faced when they're being considered for admission to a certain college. Oh, sure, this isn't going to be a huge invitation for abuse, favor pulling, all kinds of stuff. Oh, no, no, this is going to be just great, isn't it? We'll get into that and more coming up. Stay with me, team. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly neat and out. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Don't kid yourself. You do have a military-industrial complex. They do like war in Syria with the caliphate. So I wipe out 100% of the caliphate. That doesn't mean you're not going to have these crazy people going around blowing up stores and blowing up things. These are seriously ill people. They want to bring our troops back home. The place went crazy. They want to keep... You have people here in Washington. They never want to leave. I say, you know what I'll do? I'll leave a couple of hundred soldiers behind. But if it was up to them, they'd bring thousands of soldiers in. Someday people will explain it. Well, this but, is an but example. You do, have, you do have a group, and they call it the military industrial complex. They never want to leave. They always want to fight. No, I don't want to fight. But you do have situations like Iran. You can't let them have nuclear okay. weapons. You just can't let that happen. So I come back from China only to find out that the, the media is suggesting that the president wants a war with Iran. And I think this is just reckless, absolutely reckless stuff. And it reminds me of what I saw when I was when I was over there. You know, there were no channels really to watch in English. There were, I mean, a handful. One was like soccer all the time. Another had a lot of badminton on it, which is really exhilarating. You watch that professional badminton stuff. Woo! But there was CNN International. And I must tell you, CNN International is anti-American propaganda for the rest of the world. CNN International's perspective on all the different news stories of the day is trash Trump and take the view of this administration, and I would argue anything that America does because this administration, uh, take the perspective that what they're doing is terrible Trump is a monster. Oh, my gosh, this is all so bad. This is terrible. Bad, bad things. And, I mean, I just think CNN should be ashamed of itself. You know, from from watching it in my hotel room, I had no choice. There was no Fox. There was nothing else that I could watch for the news. And I, as I've said, didn't have my cell phone or my laptop. So CNN International comes on, and I say, oh, my gosh, you know, Trump wants to start a war with Iran. Trump wants to start a war with North Korea. You know, the Trump administration's in disarray. Trump is colluded with Russia. He's a criminal. All these stories, all this really terrible stuff about the commander-in-chief of the United States coming from Americans, coming from people who you would think would have some sense of pride and loyalty to their country when they're presenting it to the rest of the world. And people are going to tell me, oh, Buck, they're being objective journalists. Bullcrap. They take this very left-wing globalist internationalist point of view that america is no different from or better than any other country because they're pandering to the international audience they're pandering to people in other countries that watch cnn which is not that many people but you know cnn has managed to insert itself into airports and places all over the world where you have no choice like me stuck in a hotel room in beijing and then shanghai no choice really but to watch cnn if you want to get news Uh, But they should be ashamed. But on this Iran piece, 
I mean, really, it really burned my behind, man. It got me. It got me very agitated because the stuff, you know, with Bro Cuomo and Cooper and these people, I, I don't know how they don't understand that what they do justifies a lot of anti-Americanism abroad and justifies a lot of the, uh, the, the a lot of the sense in much of the rest of the world or some of the rest of the world that we are the cause of so many global global problems. I mean, the truth is that the world, including China, should be thanking America every day. Should thank you, America, for all the incredible stuff that you have done. Not saying we're perfect, but on balance, the world has benefited immensely from the United States. China, specifically, has benefited tremendously from the United States, from our sense of goodwill and our desire for prosperity and, and, and the the betterment of, of humankind. That's something that America has been profound in advancing over, over many, many, many decades, over really centuries, but over many decades for sure. But on Iran, I come back and I see what's going on. I think, well, wow, Trump must be doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm, I, all I can see is the CNN version of it. Turns out, no, what, they're, they're pushing sanctions, additional sanctions beyond what Obama had, the Iranians are trying to see what they can get away with. They're pulling some nonsense here and there. And turns out that the Iranians start to squeal a little bit. They, they don't like it when the pressure is enough that it hurts. And what I would say to this, and I know I was, I was on Shannon Bream's show last night talking about it, is of course the Iranians don't like this. Of course the Iranians aren't saying, oh, you mean Trump is really going to hold us accountable for the terrorism that we not just support, that they direct, that they engage in themselves. I mean, the IRGC is a terrorist organization. The IRGC is the elite, so to speak, wing of the Islamic Revolution. This is, this is their equivalent, the Iranian Revolution's equivalent of the Praetorian Guard. And the IRGC is now listed as a terrorist group, as it should be. So this isn't just a state sponsor of terror. It's really a terrorist state. And that's what you have in Tehran. And Trump takes the perspective that we're not going to allow them to just keep sending money to Hezbollah and Hamas and the Houthi rebels in Yemen and fighters to Syria and propping up the Assad regime. All this different stuff that's going on. It's not okay. It's not all right. And to stop them from doing it, you have to inflict pain on them. What does it tell us about what the Obama administration's approach was? that the Iranians are shocked that there is now an administration, that there is now a White House that insists on an end to Iran acting as the, you know, second worst axis of evil country still in existence. I think you could argue North Korea is still worse. Although, you know, North Korea is worse to its own people and has the potential to be much worse on a national security level. But North Korea, day in and day out, is not engaged in the same kind of subversion of our interests and, and attacks on our allies that you see the Iranians engaged in. So there's different cases to be made here. But I, I just think that the way that this was presented, it was so interesting for me to have to rely on very limited source of information. And I wasn't going to call my sources in, in you know, Langley. I wasn't going to call my sources in the White House. I... I, I because, you know, the Chinese are listening to everything that I do. So I had to rely on what I was given. I had to rely on Chinese state news and CNN, which, no surprise to a lot of you listening, I'm sure, line up a lot in terms of their editorial positions. 
somehow CNN is finding itself more often than not opposing the U.S. perspective and U.S. interests on a whole bunch of issues. Uh, what what a what a journalistic abomination it is. I know I know I keep switching off from which do you hate more, Buck, Iran or CNN? It's a good question. One I should one I should give some additional thought to. Uh, you know, the, the Iranians are far away threat. CNN is right here for us. So I, I'm not seeing anything with the moves the administration is taking with Iran. For those of you, I know you've been writing in and asking about this. I don't see anything that's out of line that's going too far. Trump, when he says all options are on the table, he means it. And there will be consequences for bad actions from the Iranians. But there's not going to be a ground troop invasion we're not going to send 120,000 soldiers into Iran. And, and I'll say this right now, and I will stand behind this. If, if it comes down to it, I, I would very much vocally, actively oppose another U.S. military intervention in the Middle East. We're, we're not rebuilding another country for somebody else in, in the Muslim world. We're just not doing it. We, we, we cannot be dragged into that again. But Trump doesn't want to get dragged in. That's why we started off with his with his soundbite on what's going on in Syria. And he he understands he doesn't want to leave troops in these places. He knows that it's endless. He knows that Afghanistan is never going to be what we've been promised by many people who have been in charge, stretching back for now going on 20 years. It's never going to be what we've been promised. It's never going to work the way they say it's going to work. Trump knows that he wants out. So his instincts are right on this stuff. We're not invading Iran. We're not taking over Iran. That's just fear mongering from people, including CNN and CNN International uh, opposing U.S. interests and making us look bad on the world stage. And any remember, anything to hurt Trump. I mean, ultimately, that is the, the M.O. here is whatever the news story is, if it looks bad for Trump, that's what we have to that's what we have to go with. That's what they're going to do. And you know, just amazing to be subjected to it in a way where I couldn't escape overseas. Man, it was so good to be back. So good to actually have real media people that I can talk to and rely on. On behalf of the eight generations of my family who have been in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus. This is my class, 2019. And my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. Because we are enough to take care of our own community. We are enough to ensure we have all the opportunities of the American dream. And we will show it to each other through our actions and through our words and through our deeds. Great story here about how billionaire Robert Smith, he's an an African-American founder and CEO of Vista Equity Partners, uh, how he said that at the graduation for Morehouse College for this year, he was going to pay off all the student loans for all those all those individuals in that class. A great story. Um, and you know, obviously a really, really nice graduation gift. I don't, I don't even know if I got a graduation gift, but uh, it's, it's a very, you know, heartwarming and one of these things where I'm, I'm happy that we get to talk about it. Um, but it, it also brought up, I think, a lot of very interesting commentary from the left about how, you know, this shouldn't be seen as a, uh, as a, band-aid and this isn't this doesn't really deal with the student debt bomb you know no, no good deed goes unpunished especially when the left is involved and so this guy people said you know he's i saw people on social media calling him a sellout for different things he's done in the past like can't the guy help a bunch of african-american students out without 
getting just trashed for it by some bizarre turn of, of, of logic, and that's what they end up doing. Uh, but, you know, then, then you realize how contentious this whole college debt, but also college admissions and, and the, the academy and college campuses as the arbiters of who gets what in life. We, we need to really think about this more. They're credentialing academies largely. People don't learn all that much in these undergraduate programs anymore. I know that that's, some will challenge, challenge me on that, but I, I know that I'm right. Uh, overwhelmingly, what you have with these schools are they are very expensive ways to separate yourself from others and create some kind of brand value. Now, four-year undergraduate education is very valuable in the job market. It's really a prerequisite now for a lot of jobs. But as more and more people get them, it's not as valuable, uh, valuable as it used to be. And so you're seeing a bit of downward pressure on college degrees so that now people are suggesting you got to go to get a graduate degree. You got to get a business school. You got to do all these other things. But there's also this effort to say, well, if we're going to make school elite schools more valuable in this process, because more and more people are going to go to schools, how do we determine who goes to elite schools? Ah, the admissions side of this. Now, I'm not going to talk about how Aunt Becky from Full House in a lot of trouble and Felicity Huffman from Desperate Housewives, I think has already been, she's already pleaded guilty. That might have happened right before I left for China. Now, this is a different admissions story, and it has to do with something that until I read about it, I, I didn't think that it was possible. I didn't think that this was something that they would really do, but sure enough, uh, here we are now. The college board has announced that they will, when they administer the SAT, they're going to append a, quote, adversity index to aptitude, the SAT aptitude scores, so they can create a handicap system for, handicap as in like golf handicap, for standards of privilege. That's right. There's going to be an overall disadvantage level that is assessed here as part of your standardized scores. And it's going to create what they're calling a, quote, environmental context dashboard. My friends, this is going to be a disaster. This isn't right. It doesn't make any sense. It will not work the way it is intended to work. It will only cause more problems. People need to stop trying to create a system where there is a lack of reliance on what is objective and replace it with what is entirely subjective or increasingly subjective in the minds of these admissions committees based on social justice. That's what this is. This is a social justice balancing in college in the college admissions process. And I, I would want to ask questions like, okay, how do you, how would you put, how would you gauge the overall disadvantage level of a white middle class kid whose mom comes down with, uh, with cancer, and let's say she's the main breadwinner in the house actually, and then you know the dad has to stop his job, and then they they lose their house. Does that person have white privilege, or or, or where do they fall on the disadvantage? index this reminds me of a leftist that i used to read i can't remember the guys oh freddie DeBoer, i think was his name talking about how trauma is something the left for a while tried to corner the market on 
that you could only have tra- you can only use the word trauma and have trauma psychologically if you were an oppressed minority. And he said, well, wh- what about losing your parents? What about dealing with serious illness? Any number of different traumas that one can suffer over the course of a lifetime. Does that does that get discounted if you're a white male? There, there are some leftists who would say, well, yes, it can't reach the level of psychological trauma of being an oppressed minority in America. Hmm. How do we assess this? How do you create a, a table, a chart? That's what they're doing here. That would assign some kind of numeric value to the degree of oppression. You know, we've often here on the show talked about intersectionality and how it's the left's approach to well, life in America, which is that there's all these different intersecting and overlapping groups that either suffer from oppression or enjoy different degrees of privilege, but there there really is a, a hierarchy, a clear hierarchy. This is the college board, which has a lot of power because it helps determine where people go to school. This is the college board saying that they are getting into the social justice game in a big way and trying to balance the playing field more toward people that they believe are oppressed that go to schools that have um, school lunch as a higher percentage, you know, provided by the government that have more single parent households that have, this is, this is doomed to failure. It's going to be highly imprecise and incredibly politicized and how anyone could not see that is, is really beyond me. I mean, how anyone could think that this will be anything other than a, an ongoing fight and a disaster for an already teetering on the on the brink of uh annihilation college admissions process with the end of affirmative action which i do think is coming i think affirmative action college admissions is going to be i think it will be found unconstitutional at some point in my lifetime i can't tell you when uh but the disadvantage overall disadvantage level the adversity index now is going to be applied to things. oh and if it starts in colleges you know where it goes next folks jobs government hiring, all over the place. You're going to see this. This is going to tear us apart as a society if we allow it. This is very, very destructive. i got to get into a roll call because it's been a while. We'll be right back. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Roll Call time, everybody. It's been a while. It's been a while. But it is so, so good to be back. Man, I miss doing this. I will say that. It's tough to take vacation when you feel like vacation takes you away from the thing you love. It's true. I know. It sounds a little corny maybe to some of you, but it is true. Although it was really something of a working vacation. Nonetheless, Roll Call is where we are now. Let's get to it. Michael writes, uh, even if nothing untoward happened while you were there, there's always a feeling of relief when the plane clears Chinese airspace. And that's the thing about authoritarian regimes. You just never know. Ni hao, bub sexual. Well, Michael, I, I got to agree with you, my friend. There's something that's always a little unsettling about Going to a country where there is no such thing as due process, uh, where you don't have the ability 
to challenge in any kind of true adversarial sense the whim of the government. You know, when, when I was over there, one thing that would come up is people said, and, and the locals wouldn't really say this, but some of the old China hands that I was uh, traveling with, people that have been to the country a lot, know the country, would refer to how in some places they would just clear out. They would clear out a whole section of housing and they called it a, a China-style uh, approach to dealing with urban sprawl, urbanization, uh, gentrification, which is the government says, you leave now, you're done. And that's it. And you don't really have any redress. Now, that's just about people's that's about people's homes, which is important. But you can imagine a situation where your your freedom may be in jeopardy and it, it's very unsettling. You do not want to be on the wrong side of an authoritarian police state, no matter how efficient and you know economically powerful it, it has become. So I'm, I'm very much with you, my friend. It was. It was a big sigh of relief when I uh, cleared Chinese airspace just because, as you said, I had no reason to be concerned, but you just, you don't know. Michael writes, so Buck, how many continents have you been to? How many countries? Are you planning on visiting Antarctica at some point? Shields high. Uh, you know, Michael, I've, I've traveled a, a fair amount, but there's a lot of places that, you know, so I've been to now China, Southeast Asia, all over the Middle East, all over Europe. Uh, that's really it. I'm, I'm not somebody who's traveled in South America. I'm not somebody who's traveled in Central Eurasia much. Haven't been to Russia. I don't know when I'm going to go to Russia anytime, but there's there are places that are on my list. Top of my list to go that I haven't been to yet. Spain, Portugal. Nice places. I'm at a point now in life where I really do prefer to go somewhere that I can drink the water and that I don't have to be worried about uh, the day-to-day life support things that you do anywhere. You know, I, I don't like when I have to brush my teeth with bottled water, for example. So I won't go to places like that on vacation. Usually China, I was using bottled water. I think some people say you don't necessarily have to, depending on where you're staying, but I, I did. I think that was probably the right move. Um, I know there's a lot of places that I haven't been to that I, I really want to go to, and I know there are people listening to this who have done a whole lot more traveling than me. Jeff, welcome back, Buck. Glad to see you didn't come back on your shield. Well, Jeff, that makes two of us. I hope you didn't overdo it with the Baiju. I don't even know what that is. I had visited China about 10 years ago and had noticed that people really didn't like six foot three Westerners walking around, even had a hard time catching a cab. Just wondering if things had changed at all. Jeff, you know, you get a huge variety. You get people that come from the more rural parts of China, some of the outer lying provinces who come into Beijing, uh, who come into Shanghai, and they find Westerners to be a kind of exciting treat. They want to take photos with us. I mean, I had people that wanted to take photos with me, not because they're part of my beloved radio audience, although I guess that would theoretically be possible because they could listen to the podcast, but because they just find the sight of a Westerner and, you know, my little scraggly red beard and everything else, they find it interesting. And I even had people tell me that they've had parents hand their kids to a Westerner because they want the kid to pose with a Westerner in a photograph because they think it's kind of funny or they like it for whatever reason. 
Uh, there's much less of that with the native Beijing population and with the uh, Shanghai, the Shanghainese, native Shanghai folks. So there you go. Um, they're not, and I think there's right now because of the old trade war situation. Uh, there, there's a degree of of hostility now. There's a degree of you know irritation and uh, frustration at America, and also a sense of a swelling nationalist and economic pride from the side of the Chinese, where it used to be, oh, America, you know, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Hollywood. There was a more of a sense of how great America was or how there was a, a cultural fondness. Now I think the Chinese, and this is what, look, this is why they've shut off Google. This is why they've shut off Facebook. They want to do it their way and they want their approach. And as a result, there's a little bit of the otherizing of America in the eyes of the Chinese. And you are definitely the other when you are there. That is for sure. Nathan, hey, Buck, hope you're having a great trip. Your guest hosts are on point, uh, but producer Mike should know the volume on Stitcher is better, and three commercials aren't for transgender issue podcast. Great job, Shields High. Uh, Nathan, I don't know what the podcast commercials were, but I can tell you that uh, I'm seeing a lot of very positive feedback about our guest hosts across the board. And that's my, that's my mission for all of you is that when, if I can't be here, I always want someone at the reins. If I have to, if I'm sick or on vacation, which I don't, I don't like doing either of those things really vacation once in a while. Um, I want somebody at the helm of the freedom hut who is really good. Who's doing a good show for you that you're going to want to listen to. Other hosts do this thing, and they get the kind of the mediocre to weak host, so that people, oh, I miss, you know, so-and-so, so amazing. That's not my approach. I prefer to have somebody in who's really good, and hopefully you still always want me back. Uh, Brittany writes, Team Buck misses you. Safe travels, and if China tries to keep you, which I wouldn't blame them for, I'll join the Bring Buck Back movement. Well, Brittany, I very much appreciate that. Fortunately, it did not come to that, so that's a good thing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Missed all of you, too. William writes, CIA analyst Jack Ryan, Amazon Prime series. It has John Krasinski from The Office in 13 Hours. I only watched the first episode and thought it was awesome. Jack Ryan reminded me of you because he's an analyst and he was walking around drinking coffee. Indeed, William. Two things I was very good at. Watch it and give Team Buck your thoughts. Shields high. Uh, William, I, I, I think I've talked about that show before. I thought it was pretty entertaining. It's preposterous. I mean, it's wildly unrealistic, but it, it is pretty entertaining. I can say that. It's something that I think you, you will enjoy if you were to, uh, to watch the rest of it. And John Krasinski does a good job. I wasn't, I know he was good in the office too. I should separate out, you know, do I like his politics? No. Is he a big lib? Yes. But overall, I think he does a pretty good job on that show. And yeah, sometimes CIA analysts do get the girl or the ladies, as the case may be. That's right. Lowell writes, I just turned on the podcast from Monday with Charlie Kirk and like the first few minutes about the China trade war. Sounded like a Rush Limbaugh regurgitation, but good information. Then Charlie went into the into the latest episode of Game of Thrones, which I haven't seen yet. 
I turned off the podcast and will not listen anytime Charlie's on his podcast. Uh, he doesn't even have the common sense not to tell movie plots on national shows. Shields high. Hope all's well in China. Uh, you know, also attacking China on your national show while you're in China could make you the next victim of a Chinese kidnapping. Just a thought. Well, Lol, I'm sorry if there was a spoiler for you about Game of Thrones, but you know, that's going to be unfortunately something that's a, an occupational hazard for people in media. When, when there's a big thing like that, people are going to talk about it, but. I can tell you I have not seen the last two episodes of Game of Thrones, and I'm not going to waste any of your time talking about it right now because I haven't seen it, so that wouldn't make any sense. But also, I've known for a while, and I've been saying it for a while, that the, the show is, it's not what it used to be. It's, it's gone off the rails a little bit. It's just not as compelling. It's not, the writing is not as good. The writing is not as tight, and you just see that throughout, so... That's where I am on it, my friends. That's what I've. That's what I got for you on uh, Game of Thrones for now. I'll come back when I've got more, and we'll hit a quick pause. Come back to finish out the roll call strong. Stay with me. All right, we're back in roll call after the longest absence that I think I have had from this show since it began. And I don't know. I don't want to. I'm not taking off like that again for a while because I missed you all too much. Uh, but let's get right back into it with all of your thoughts, all of your. Comments, suggestions, witticisms. Irene writes, glad you're home safe and sound. The guys filled in well for you, but you are the buck. Welcome back. We'll be listening tonight. Here you're on after Hannity. Well, I'm in great company then. And Irene, thank you so much for your kind words. Missed you all too. It is good to be back. Terry, welcome back, Buck. Question. I know when people modify their mortgages, the IRS views these forgiven debts as new income. Happened to my brother-in-law. Will this be the case if Liz Warren gets her college debt forgiveness plan? Would people get a letter from the IRS claiming they owe money because of this new debt modification? Shields high from Terry. You know, Terry, I I always tell you when I don't know, and the answer is I have no idea. Uh, Now, I think it's fair to say that no one really has any idea because if you're if we're really talking about a future Elizabeth Warren plan, you know, who who knows what that's going to look like when it's all when it's all said and done. I mean, who knows where that's really going to shake out? Um I would say that uh it sounds to me like the IRS unless they created some kind of a carve out, the IRS might consider that to be some form of of new income. This is why I'm still an advocate for we need the IRS to be much, much smaller. We need the IRS to have a simplified code, all this stuff. But there you have it. Uh, Steven writes, hey, Buck, this is a little out of left field. Okay, maybe the next zip code over. But I listened to Joe Rogan the other day, and he had on Tulsi Gabbard. If Pence decided not to run, what do you think of her? She's all about the people like Trump. Plus, I think she'd be the perfect yin to his yang. And just elected Dem to be with the Republican. Just wanted to hear your thoughts. Shields high. Uh, Steven, I I will tell you, of the Democrats, and some of you might get mad at me for this, I kind of like Tulsi Gabbard. I know that they, they trash her over the whole Assad thing, but maybe that was bad judgment to talk to him, and maybe her positions on Assad are not in line with... I, I can't even tell you what their positions are. I'll be, I've got to just say, I know that the left and the right trash her for what she does and what she says. But because she agitates all the right leftists, I think that there must be something 
to her. There must be something to uh, to recommend Tulsi Gabbard because the uh, the establishment left and even many progressives hate her, absolutely hate her, and she seems pretty inoffensive to me on a number of on a number of topics. And I I think that her sense of where we are in terms of intervention in the Middle East, I, I think she's on the right track with that. So I find Tulsi Gabbard kind of interesting. I, I also just have to note that the Democrats have really uh, abandoned her and, and do not, do not promote her. She is not a favorite of the Democrat uh, establishment, either on the far left or the more DNC, Hillary Clinton, Biden uh, types. So that's what I got for you on Tulsi Gabbard. Maybe I'll get her on the show. I, I'd love to have her on the show. We should reach out to her. I don't think she'll ever do it. You know, people think, oh, here's a conservative. Yeah, I'm a conservative, but I'm a smart, nice conservative. If anything, I'm too polite. I should probably start crushing fools under my boot heel. Instead, I'm just oh so witty and cuddly at the same time. Alan writes, Buck, great lineup of guest hosts. Kudos to all of them, but we'll be glad to hear you back again on the air. Regale us with your stories from your China expedition. One quick question. If the Mexican cartels are making billions of dollars, then what do they do with all that money? I don't see any stories about them buying yachts, private jets, and NYC condos overlooking the park. It'd be interesting to find out how they spend all that loot. Thank you. Alan, there's a whole book written on narconomics that might be able to answer this better than I can just off the top of my head. So if you want to check that out, that's one place. That's one uh, resource i can refer you to and then as to where the cartel spends its money uh one paying a massive array of different personnel everything from accountants to assassins and politicians and policemen too uh and they they stash their money all over the world remember that if you have a willing government and pretty lax banking laws stashing cash now is an exercise in moving electrons around it uh, you don't have to necessarily well, I guess at the initial phase when you get cash for a drug deal, not a lot of people are putting drugs drugs on their credit card, but they try to launder it, and then you're just stashing cash wherever you can. So there it is. Team, I am so glad to be back. I'm out here on the West Coast for the week. I'm in Los Angeles, so any of Team Buck that uh, have any recommendations, or if you want it, this weekend I'm going to be running around Santa Monica and Venice, so hey, reach out. Maybe I'll be able to grab a beer with you, although I don't drink beer, as you know. I drink other things. Um, but I'm here on the West Coast and so glad to be back. I'll be with you every day this week and every day going forward. I will talk to you next time. Shields high.